the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We're glad you're with us today. Uh, Pete Paquette gets us on the air. He's our engineer. Andrew Herdliska does the producing. And I'm happy to welcome J.D. Payne uh, to us. He, we're going to talk about his book, Apostolic Imagination, Recovering a Biblical Vision for the Church's Mission Today. J.D. is a professor of Christian ministry at Samford University in Birmingham. And uh, J.D., welcome to Orlando. I'm so happy you have time for us. Well, thank you, Pat. It's an honor to be with you. I appreciate you and your ministry, brother. I want to hear more about this book. Well, I'm excited about this. Uh, It just recently came out. Um, Definitely been a long time in the making. I think of all of my publications, I think this one I have prayed about and chewed on and pondered the most over a period of, of many, many years. And so it was so it was very nice to see this make the light of day. I want you to dive right in. The first uh, chapter is a question. What is the apostolic imagination? Yes, so, you know, here, here's the, the, the back the backdrop behind that question, Pat, that I think is helpful to kind of raise at the beginning of of our conversation, and that is, I feel like in a sense, and, you know, we can dive into this issue deeper if you want to, I feel like in a sense that the Church has, in many ways, lost focus um, in what she's doing in the world in her Great Commission activities. And so when I asked the question in that first chapter, what is the the apostolic imagination, what I'm basically thinking about is, you know, during the first century, when we look at the New Testament, I think the apostolic imagination was was really a spirit-transformed mindset that uh, helped facilitate uh, urgent and widespread uh, gospel proclamation, disciple-making, church planting, and leadership development. And I think that we, uh, as followers of Christ uh, in our day and time, need to really return to that way of thinking and way of viewing the world. So that would be how I would summarize that question or answer that question, what is the apostolic imagination? And then you move right on to topic number two, challenges to the imagination. What's that about? Well, I, I recognize that in a book that is really calling for a paradigm shift in the way that uh, we think about what we have come to call missions in the world today, uh, I realize that part of helping us recognize the need for shifting the paradigm is 
to recognize that there are certain challenges out there to that imagination that I just defined a moment ago. And so we didn't get to where we are today overnight, and and we will not, I think, get back on the right path overnight, uh, because many of the things are, are are deep in our traditions and our cultures, the way that we think about missions, the way we define missions. Uh, the language that we use today, I think, is, is many times problematic. Um, you know, we find ourselves in a time uh, in, in the present where the church can be involved in missions at home and abroad, and the gospel is never shared, and we still talk about it as being missions. Uh, I think part of the way that we think about what it means to share the gospel and do evangelism uh, oftentimes lacks an understanding of the need to cross cultural gaps in people's worldviews. And so we often think, well, if my church gives an evangelistic invitation at the end of the sermon, we're an evangelistic church. But, you know, is that really, you know, what, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about our Great Commission task? Uh, just our perspective on how we look at uh, even the concept of of mission, so to speak, we 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 think of it in terms of home and abroad, domestic domestic and international, and I would say that biblically, when you look at it, it's more about us as a follower of Christ crossing cultural gaps, and it's not so much this notion of missions only happens overseas, and so there are a variety of challenges that I think that are out there that we have been um, uh, facing for, for centuries in some cases. And so in that second chapter, I really tried to raise a, a lot of these particular points. Well, let's keep moving. Apostolic identity in the New Testament. What are you writing there? Well, if we, if we look at the New Testament, we ask the question, what is this concept of uh, disciple-making, what does it look like first and foremost? Where do we see the prime examples of this? Where do we see potential uh, models that we can, we can look at today? Where can we find principles that we can apply in what we're doing uh, in the world today? I think we have to begin to return to what we see with Jesus, uh, the Twelve, uh, Paul, um, some of the, the others like Barnabas, Epaphroditus, uh, those that were engaged in, in ascending type of ministry where they were, they were sent uh, with a message of hope, they were sent with a message of good news, and, and what did they do as they went you know, into the world? And so in order to, to talk about the apostolic imagination, we have to really get back to understanding, well, how did the, uh, how did the early church, how the first century church think about uh, the apostolic identity. You know who who was who was an apostle. What uh, what were they what were they doing? Of course, that kind of gets into the, the next chapter. But what all of this does in the first half of the book is help us think about the foundations before we think about changing things on a practical level. My guest is J.D. Payne. We're talking about his book, Apostolic Imagination. J.D., we've arrived at. Uh, this topic, apostolic function in the New Testament. Explain that. Yes, so the the apostolic work in the New Testament was well, um, narrowly defined, but within that narrow definition, I think there were several functions that were involved that the church really gave a priority to when it came to her thinking about the Great Commission task that the Lord had given to her. 
And I think that there are at least six things that we see in the New Testament that really shaped, that came out of the apostolic identity uh, found in the local churches, but at the same time influenced their practical ministry in the world. And so so those six, very quickly, uh, they were involved in preaching the gospel to unbelievers. So they were out in the highways and hedges of, of lostness. They were involved in, number two, teaching new disciples. So as people came to faith, they were teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Uh, the third thing that they were engaged in, and we see this a great deal in Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12 and 13, is that they were involved in planting churches. And the churches that they were planting, this is so important, uh, it's a part of the apostolic uh, imagination. The churches they were planting were churches that were made up of new believers who had just recently come into the kingdom. They were not churches being planted by shuffling the sheep around in the kingdom, by saying, hey, let's take some people from Jerusalem who are already believers and let's start a new church with them to create another flavor of, uh, of the church in this context. But they were planting churches out of the harvest. Uh, they were de- involved in developing elders, appointing pastors over those churches. Uh, the fifth thing, they were involved in caring for those new churches. They were helping them uh, get established and, and, and develop in in their sanctification. And then I think the last thing that we see that's primarily connected to the apostolic identity is that they were engaged in partnering with those new churches. So we see Paul oftentimes locking arms with new churches and taking the gospel into new regions. Uh, He does this with the Philippians. He does this as he writes to the Roman Christians and says, hey, I need you to help me get on to Spain uh, so I can preach the gospel there. And so when we think about the apostolic identity, what are those practices that come out of that, I think at least six. Well, let's keep rolling here. Uh, J.D. Payne is our guest. We're talking about his book, Apostolic Imagination. Uh, You move now into this area of reimagining contemporary missions, and uh, we've arrived at topic five, reimagining language. What are you reimagining here, J.D.? Well, it it begins with us thinking about just the terms that we use, uh, because language language communicates culture, it communicates worldview, it communicates the things that we, we do. And for the most part, particularly in uh, Protestant circles today throughout the world, we use same terms, but we often are operating from different uh, dictionaries. So, I mean, you think about, for example... Even the most uh, traditional churches, most traditional pastors, this coming Sunday, uh, hypothetically speaking, they're going to announce that the youth choir's mission trip will take place next year as they go to Appalachia to sing in the worship services of another church. And the men on mission will be doing missions in Honduras this summer by installing a roof on a school. But today, we as a church are to pray for the missionaries planting churches uh, in the Middle East among an unreached people. And so the language of mission is very confusing. I mean, who are we talking about? Uh, what are they doing? Uh, is everyone a missionary? I mean, these are some of the things that we find ourselves today with the terminology. And my argument in this chapter is that we need to reimagine the language that we use by returning to the scriptures and ask the question, well, what do we find there? And what we find is that the words missions, missionary, um, they're not there. They actually came into strong use with the church, uh, referring to the Jesuits in the 16th century. And so I'm just arguing that we need to get back to the first century in the language we use. Well, let's keep rolling here. 
reimagining identity. What does that mean? Yes, yeah, so that 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 gets into the the issue that I just mentioned a few moments ago, and that is, well, are all you know, are all Christians missionaries? So some would say yes, some would say no. Um, it depends on one's dictionary that they're using, because some people would say, well, everything the church does is is missions, and so therefore all Christians are missionaries. But some would say no, uh, the church uh, the church's work is restricted to a few tasks, and they would say not everyone is a missionary. And then you'd have some groups out there saying, well, the only people that are missionaries are those that have been commissioned or sent by a church or an agency. But the thing that we often think about, the thing that we often do uh, today is we will take uh, matters and use them according to our dictionary. So if a teacher moves to the Middle East to teach in a Christian school, you know, does that make him a missionary? You know, If a certified public accountant takes a job in Asia and serves with a church planting team, is she a missionary or is she a CPA or is she both? Um, you know, is it correct to refer to short-term uh, team of adults being sent from their churches as missionaries? Or you know, what about a person in his country of birth who's serving among an unreached people group, you know, is that person a missionary? And so we find ourselves in a time where where our identity is is really confusing. And the response that I'm making in that chapter is to say, well, let's go back to the New Testament and let's look at that apostolic identity when it should be given priority to and attention to in our Great Commission work. J.D., we need to... Keep the ball rolling here because we've arrived at reimagining priority. Uh, what does that mean? So we live in a time whereby you know, seven and a half billion people in the world, uh, over four billion of those people have no relationship with Christ. Um, close to three billion have never even even heard the name of Jesus. Um, with with that in mind, we would have to to ask ourselves the question, is what we're presently doing, is it wise kingdom stewardship when it comes to the way we're thinking about lostness and making disciples of all nations? Where we are right now, throughout the world, this is not just in the United States, but throughout the world, the church, for every 30 missionaries that are sent, only one, only one goes to serve among the unreached people groups. The other 29 are going to reach people groups, reach populations of the financial resources that we contribute. Very, very small amounts, about a penny or two of every dollar that churches give actually go to reaching unreached people groups, those in the frontier areas, if you will. And I would just say when we look at the New Testament, I think we see a prioritization in what the church was doing in her global work. And it really comes out of Paul's Paul's imagination, for example, in Romans chapter 15, where he says that he, he desires to, to preach the gospel where a foundation has never been laid. He desires to proclaim the good news and make disciples where there, uh, there are people that are without the gospel. And I would just ask the question, in light of the world in which we find ourselves, in light of the Great Commission, in light of what we see in the New Testament, should we not be given priorities to certain matters related to the unreached? J.D. Payne is with us. His book is called Apostolic Imagination. We've got another segment with J.D. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening, of course, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Stay tuned to these signals all day long and you will be better for it. 
We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. J.D. Payne is with us. He's in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, He's a professor of Christian ministry at Samford University. And we're talking about his book, Apostolic Imagination, Recovering a Biblical Vision for the Church's Mission Today. So, J.D., the next challenge you're presenting to us is reimagining function. Uh, tell us what that means. Yes, and this, this just rolls out of the previous concept that we talked about, reimagining priority. Uh, right now, for the most part, uh, the majority perspective is that the church has no priorities in the world, uh, that everything the church does is, is equivalent, and therefore um, sharing the gospel uh, is just as equivalent as uh, caring for the creation, which is very important. Um, planting churches is just as equivalent as helping out in, in social ministries as well, which are also very important. But I would say that if we look in the scriptures and we ask the question, are there any priorities that the church focuses on? And I think that there are. I think we see a priority, for example, in Acts chapter 6 of the apostles saying that it's important for us to do this food distribution as a church to the widows in the church, but we need to give our attention to preaching the gospel and to prayer. I would say that if the church in the first century believed that there was some kind of apostolic prioritization, then in our day and time, I would say when it comes to our functions— of what we should be primarily doing uh, throughout the world, giving a great deal of attention to, are the functions of the apostolic, if you will, the things that we talked about a few moments ago, those six, the preaching to unbelievers, teaching new disciples, planting churches, developing elders, caring for new churches, and partnering with new churches. Uh, While there are many important things that the church needs to be doing and should be doing in the world, I would say Out of that prioritization, we need to think in terms of what are those functions that practically need to play out in the world, and I would say they're rooted in an apostolic model. Tell us about reimagining location. Yes, so this goes back to something that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, and that is for the longest time, and it's still with us today, for the longest time, the understanding of missions has primarily been something that we see as not in my backyard, uh, something that is in another country, something that is, the old expression, is overseas. And I would say that when we look in the scriptures, what we see is that a great deal of the things that we often point to today for support for why we do what we do throughout the world really wasn't overseas. It was 300 miles uh, north of Jerusalem and Antioch, or uh, maybe uh, around uh, around the Mediterranean in another location. And so when we, talk, when we talk about reimagining location, I want us to begin to think in terms of that concept that I mentioned a moment ago from Romans 15 of Paul talking about where he wants to carry out the apostolic functions, where he gives his prioritization to. It's in the context whereby the gospel is is very um, much non-existent. Very few believers are there. Uh, little to no church presence exists. And so in light of our world, the notion of reimagining location is for us to begin to think in terms of where are those cultural gaps 
that need the gospel that we can cross over into and see churches planted among. Now, J.D., it's time for a reimagining strategy. So there's a cartoon that's been around for, for quite some time, and so it's nothing new with me. And it's a, it's a cartoon of a couple of individuals, and they're standing in, in front of a wall. Uh, there are a couple of bullseyes painted on the wall and, uh, and a couple of arrows that are right in the center of the bullseyes, or targets, excuse me, targets point, point painted on a wall. And in the bullseye, there are two arrows. And um, uh, they're standing there talking, and one of the individuals is actually uh, with a bucket of paint and a paintbrush, and the arrow is, is already stuck in the wall, and he's painting the bullseye, or he's painting the target around the arrow. And the, the caption underneath it is, you know, this way, I never miss. And so I think what we have often done as, as followers of Christ is that we, we do things in the world around us, and and then we go out and we paint the bullseye around the things we do, rather than asking, what does the wise kingdom steward uh, need to be doing in light of the world in which we find ourselves, in light of the, the resources that God has given us, in light of our calling, in light of the Great Commission, in light of the scriptures that we have. And so reimagining strategy is for us to think more strategic in what we're doing, to think more about uh, how would the Lord have us to carry out this Great Commission rather than just doing a bunch of things at random without any thought or prayer, without any atten- attention uh, to details, uh, without any sort of prioritization? Uh, how would the Lord have us to live? And so that's what this chapter is getting at. It's, it's causing us to, to use that godly wisdom and say, Lord, we want to be a wise steward with what you've given us as we think about moving from where we are to where you want us to go. J.D. Payne, we've arrived at uh, Chapter 11, Reimagining the West. Uh, explain all that to us. What's it mean? Yes, so there's been a lot of conversations over the past 20 years at least. It actually goes back longer than that, but in the United States especially, uh, since the late 1990s, uh, the question has been raised, is the West a mission field? Uh, Our brothers and sisters in Western Europe were asking that question decades before us, Uh, but the, the reality is that if the West is a mission field, then it's definitely a different mission field than what we're often uh, familiar with when it comes to talk mission field, if you will. In other words, we have a great deal of established church presence, established church structures. We have uh, lots of pastoral leadership. But what we find ourselves in is really a post-Christianized context in the Western world, in the traditionally Western world, and states in particular. And so we find ourselves in a situation where uh, worldviews have been shifting significantly. You you see the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the people who have no religious preference whatsoever in the United States. You see the migration of into uh, the United States. The United States is actually home to the third largest number of unreached people groups in the world. Um, In light of that, in light of all these cultural shifts, these worldview shifts, what does that leave for us to to think about and how to act and, and how to minister. And and here's what it, here's what usually happens. We usually look at it through the set of lenses that are, are very pastoral and very traditional. Now keep in mind I I've been a pastor for uh, in addition to also being a professor. 
and so I'm, I'm not against pastors because, you know, that, that's part of my calling and who I am. But we have created a culture, a context in the United States, whereby the answer to almost all of our ministry actions and functions are set through the lenses of a pastoral approach, a pastoral imagination, if you will. And that's wonderful, and that's fine where the church is well-respected, where you have strong church presence. But what happens if the cultural gaps of, of, of the people that are unbelievers to the people that are believers, what if those cultural gaps widen? What if they're, they're in some cases, so, so large, it's like someone going from the United States into uh, the Horn of Africa to minister to people? But what if that happens in our backyard? And so the, the question is, how then should the church react? How then should the church function? And I would say there are some great challenges and there are some great opportunities, but we have to really reimagine what does it look like to engage in apostolic functions in a context where there are many established churches in a Christian presence. J.D., the conclusion of your book is simply a word to pastors. What do you tell them? First of all, I tell them that um, in my background and my ministry, uh, first and foremost, I, I see myself as pastor-teacher. That Ephesians 4.11, you know, you gave pastor-teachers equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And so I let them know that I'm on their side in, in this calling of, of really a paradigm shift in the way we think, the way we identify, the way we define, and the way we function in the world in light of the Great Commission. But what I tell pastors is to remain a pastor in their callings. In other words, if the Lord has called them to be a pastor, then they should not uh, abandon that and go start up or join an apostolic team. They need to be who they are in their ministries. They need to lead their churches to have a vision for the nations at home and abroad. They need to lead their churches to develop an imagination. And that means that pastors themselves, while functioning as pastors, need to learn to think apostolically. And they need to help their churches form those teams that will be sent across those cultural gaps in the Western world and throughout the majority world countries as well. And so the, the role of the pastor in this process of seeing the church really recover a biblical vision is critical. And so in that conclusion, it's really my heart going out to pastors saying, be who you are and lead your churches for change in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and in light of the fact that there's so many people in the world that need him. J.D. Payne has been our guest talking about his book, Apostolic Imagination. We've got more after this. Stay with us on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This, of course, is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. In Orlando, we will return. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. J.D. Payne, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Apostolic Imagination. J.D. was in Birmingham, Alabama. While we go up to the Minneapolis area, we found John Brandon. He's a reporter and columnist for Inc. Magazine, Fox News Network, Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine. His new book is out. It's called The 7-Minute Productivity Solution. How to manage your schedule, overcome distraction, and achieve the results you want. Well, John, welcome to Orlando. I hope things are well with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Uh, why was it important to write this book? You know, I had to learn a lot of lessons about productivity. Uh, I've been a journalist for uh, about 20 years now, a little over 20 years. And, you know, it's one of those fields where you have to stay on top of your game at all times. You have to stick to deadlines and make the most of your time. So I actually came up with this idea that I learned so much from productivity of my own. I wanted to share some of those ideas and thoughts with, with readers and just say, here's, here's how you can work with more purpose in your life. Here's how you can uh, you know, have a kingdom purpose for your job. And here's all the lessons that I've learned from doing that myself. Well, let's dive in. Your first sec, uh, section, and they're all called, there are eight sections. Section one is called the morning routine. Define what's meaningful. You're smarter in the morning. Capture the hope moments. Put yourself on the right path. Fill us in. Yeah, so this is something that I did uh, right away as a journalist. I started in about 2001, shortly after 9-11, actually. Um, And I, I just learned that I had to stay on task right away in the morning. I had to jot down some ideas and thoughts and the stressors that are going to happen during the day. And I went through a routine, and I discovered that it took me about seven minutes to go through that routine. Um, I actually remember using a kitchen timer back then in 2001. And it's something that in the morning we have the most hope of the day. You know, unfortunately, sometimes as the day goes on, we have disappointments and setbacks. Hope tends tends to slide away from us as we go along. But in the morning, we have the most hope. And so that's the best time to write down our thoughts for the day. Think about what you're going to accomplish. If you set a plan to accomplish those things, it's very likely that you will achieve some of them. But most of us, you know, after we have our coffee, we just dive right in. So I wanted to come up with a routine for people that says, here's what you need to do for seven minutes to set the stage for your day. And then you can focus on the tasks that matter just for that day. Let's move to section two, plan your day, learn how to focus, stop relying so much on lists, do the most important tasks first, and how to set critical goals. Yeah, and so the thing with the plan your day routine is is similar to the seven-minute morning routine that I was just talking about, where you, uh, you take seven minutes and you jot down the most important tasks for the day. Uh, There's something called time boxing that I talk about. This is a well-known productivity tip uh, where you group things together. So the most important tasks you put together, you get in the flow state of work. Maybe you group your most important meetings together. So you're just having an afternoon of meetings and not interrupted by a, a thousand other tasks and distractions. And, again, it's all about saying, I want to work with purpose. I want to have things that matter in my workday the most. And when I I focus on the things that matter, that becomes the type of person that has a kingdom purpose and has a purpose in your job instead of just being really random and saying, I'm just going to do whatever comes at me during the day. It's time to move on, John, to section number three. Take a break. How to avoid decision fatigue. Stop tunneling your goals. Becoming more self-aware. Yeah, and this is an amazing one for me because if anyone's listening to this and you haven't, 
taking breaks during your day, you're really missing out because a period of time um, when you can take a step back from work and ruminate about things, am I working on the right task? Uh, the take-a-break routine is really meant to say, um, I just need to step back from my work and stop being on this, you know, 100-mile-an-hour race that we're always on, checking email, checking social media, then going back right to email and checking it again. That is a terrible way to work because we don't know if we're working on the right task. We don't know if we're working with purpose. So if anyone's listening to this and you don't take breaks, I'm giving you permission to do that. Go ahead. Take two or three of these during the day. Um, I recommend seven minutes. Sometimes it's just a matter of going for a brisk walk around the office or whatever it is. But take a step back from your work, and your work will be much more productive when you do that. My guest is John Brandon. We're talking about his book, The Seven-Minute Productivity Solution. And, John, we've landed now at uh, Section 4. You call it Debrief Your Day. Achieving goals by unlearning old habits, hardship makes us stronger, ending the day with renewed hope. Uh, We want to hear more. Yeah, and you might be sensing that there's a pattern here where taking a step back from your work is just as important as the work itself. Uh, In the book, I talked a lot about uh, are you working on the right task? Do you have purpose and meaning in your job? And unfortunately, we live in a world of distraction where we don't stop and look back at our day and say, you know, did I even work on the right things? Did I even accomplish anything today? Or did I just scroll through Instagram all day long? Um, So what I'm suggesting here is for seven minutes, usually about an hour before bed when you're not too tired, you can look back, grab a journal and a pen, and write down your biggest accomplishments of the day, and then ruminate on it and think about for at least a few minutes, were those tasks You know, were they valid? Were they purposeful? Did they have intentionality behind them? And then guess what? The new day starts again. We all get 24 hours in the day. Uh, Even the, you know, the president of the United States, he only gets 24 hours. So it's all about making use of that time and looking back and saying, did I work on the right thing? Or can tomorrow, maybe I can work on different tasks that lead to that sense of purpose that I'm craving so much. John, I want you to dive into uh, Section 5 with us, obsessively checking email. Houston, (laughs) we have an email problem. Reclaim 30 hours of work. The great email challenge. The real goal is relationships. Take it from there. There's been two different studies on this, uh, one from Adobe and one from a company called (laughs) IBM. Uh, independent studies that have suggested that we spend as much as 30 hours per week just checking email. And I don't know about you, but if we're working 40 hours and three-quarters of that time we're processing Gmail or Outlook, that just doesn't sound very productive to me. So with email, what I'm suggesting is that, oh, you know what, instead of checking email for a few hours every single day, what if we just had a more regimented system a routine that said, here's how to check email effectively. And I'm suggesting that you actually time yourself for seven minutes and do this in short spurts. You know, maybe you could do it four or five times per day. That's fine. But you're setting limits to yourself 
And also, you know, email is important, but is it really as important as relationships at work or the projects you're doing? Um, I'd like to relegate email to where it belongs to something that's just helping us communicate but isn't consuming and, it's, and causing this obsession over email where we're just on it all day long. And now, John, we've arrived at uh, section number six. Uh, mindless web surfing and social media use, the great deception. What happens to your brain when you surf? Feeding the right wolf when you're online. Avoiding the doom scroll on social media. And uh, the hyperactive hive mind of online obsession. The relentless pursuit of perfection. I can't wait to hear all this. Yeah, almost too much to cover, but the summary there is that uh, there's something that that does happen in our brains when we're surfing the web and when we're checking social media, and what it is is called dopamine. So we get a dopamine hit in our brain that rewards us for these little micro-interactions that we have. Whenever someone likes a post on Facebook or whenever someone sends us a a cheerful message by chat and we – we tend to think that that's like this amazing reward, like on par with finishing a marathon or writing an entire proposal for our job. And it really isn't. So that dope, those dopamine hits, they're a, bit a bit, they're a bit fake and a bit false because we're getting these micro rewards, which is nice, and we feel good about it, but it's really not that important. So what I'm saying is that we need to control that usage. I'm not saying get rid of the apps. I'm saying that in the end, we just need to control them. And that whole section is talking about just being smart about how long you use these apps and how long you scroll on Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is. Um, Setting limits to your web browsing. You know, sometimes people spend two hours just searching for a new car or a new boat or whatever it is. And it's not a great use of your time. It's not that productive. So Setting limits to that really is a smart way to be productive. Uh, John, what is dopamine again? So dopamine is just a small chemical that's in our brain that tells us that we've done something good and we've been rewarded. Um, Like I mentioned how when you finish a marathon, you feel this flush of dopamine that you accomplished something. Unfortunately, with social media, we also get that reward, but it's false because we haven't really accomplished anything. We've just seen someone comment on a post or click like on a post. So we get obsessed with things and we get addicted to things because we think that's an accomplishment when in reality it really isn't an accomplishment. My guest is John Brandon. We're talking about his book, The 7-Minute Productivity Solution, Uh, Section 7, The Never-Ending Presentation, Selling an Idea in Only 7 Minutes, How Sustained Attention Span Works, Closing the deal in your presentation, where does that fit in all this? Yeah, I wanted to have a section on presentations because, you know, a lot of us have sat through presentations where someone is thinking that PowerPoint is actually entertaining when it's not, or they've maybe made a few jokes here and there, and then they get into, you know, 14 different slides on on sales figures for the company. It's just not a very good use of time. I'm suggesting that presentations could really be only about seven minutes 
And this is based on science. So the brain can focus on something for about seven minutes. It's called sustained attention span. So what if a presentation just took advantage of that time when we're really focused, really paying attention, and then after the presentation ends, after seven minutes, we go on and do other tasks and maybe even meet with each other or collaborate. And this also comes from the world of entrepreneurship and pitch meetings. You know, if someone has a new company that they've started, oftentimes a pitch meeting or a pitch presentation will last about seven minutes, and I've seen this over and over again. So my, my uh, word of encouragement to people doing presentations is you have people, you have their attention for seven minutes. Wouldn't it be a great idea if we just uh, did the presentation in that amount of time and then just release people to do other things that are important? And now <clears throat> let's get to section number eight, boring old meetings. Why the best meetings are short. Resolve problems in seven minutes? How to focus your meetings and your time. Run with it. Yeah, and this is similar to presentations where meetings can be a lot shorter. A lot of them are not productive if they last for an hour. I realize sometimes maybe you need to collaborate people for, with people for a long period of time. Uh, but I'm suggesting that most meetings can probably just be a quick huddle with a few people where you make a big decision and then you collaborate with other apps like text or email or whatever it is. Oftentimes, you know, we have all been in these boring meetings where nothing's ever decided, nothing's really discussed at a deep level. I'm actually giving permission to people as an author, as a productivity expert, why don't you just have seven-minute meetings and make the decisions and then let, let everybody get back to the work that they have that's most pressing in mind. John Brandon is our guest. we got another segment with John. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FLM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, we're back with John Brandon talking about his book, The Seven-Minute Productivity Solution. And, uh, folks, by the way, uh, this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Stay plugged in all day long. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, folks, and uh, uh, we're at the halfway mark with our guest, John Brandon, talking about the seven-minute productivity solution. John, the epilogue of your book is called Ending on a Good Minute. Uh, what are you telling us there? I, I actually uh, really enjoyed writing that section of the book because it was a chance to just speak to readers directly and say, okay, you've been through the whole book, you've done all these routines, you've taken a break, you've done your morning routine, maybe you've figured out a little bit about how productivity is more purpose than working hard and fast all day long. So let's say that someone has, has finished the book and they've gotten to this point and they think, okay, I finally have figured out that, the, that working with purpose is what matters the most. Now what? And I end the book by saying, 
Give yourself permission to fail. Give yourself permission that there are a lot of distractions. <laughs> at a time in the world when there are more distractions than we've ever experienced. And I'm talking about everything from, you know, what's happening across the world in Ukraine and, and those uh, travesties that are happening. I'm talking about all the distractions that happen just with our daily work and getting an influx of emails and uh, news reports and social media. It's never been like this before. It's okay to give yourself permission to even fail as a productivity person, but it, it's also okay to just take a breath and say, you know what, I want to figure out how to be more purposeful and intentional with my time. That's why I keep talking about seven minutes. It teaches us to think about time um, and how that passes and what we're doing. And it also teaches us to say it's not a race to do as many tasks as we possibly can in a short period of time. It's actually way more important to think about what we're doing. Are we becoming the person that God wants us to be? Are we becoming the person that we want to be that can uh, serve Him and be intentional with our time? Um, and that leads to a sense of purpose in your life, too. This is all about having a kingdom purpose and saying, I don't want to just do this work and do these tasks and finish 30, 40, 50 things in a day and then just collapse in a heap on the couch. I want to be the type of person that has more intentionality to what I do in my job. John, I'm curious about your background as a reporter and columnist for Inc. Magazine, Fox News Network, Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine. What's the background here, and how did all that work start for you? Yeah, I get that question a lot because, you know, they're well-known publications. A lot of people know about, obviously, Fox News. Inc. Magazine is a very popular business magazine. I also write for Forbes, which is very well-known. And I have to uh, quite a bit of time, I would say a couple of years, to work up to the point where I was writing for Fox and writing for Inc. And the reason that all came about is because, uh, you know, after working in the corporate world for 10 years, uh, I was actually uh, downsized on 9-18-2001 from my corporate job. And my wife had the suggestion, you know, you've got a journalism degree. Why don't you put that into practice and start writing? But here's the real secret to it. Uh, my wife and I started praying right away that day on 9-18-2001. And our prayer was always the same. It was, God, would you give us favor for this work? <coughs> the work that we're doing, can, can you bring about the right editors and the right outlets and magazines? And it was just amazing to see that that prayer came to fruition time and time again for the last 20 years. And, you know, when I look at it and say, how am I even writing for Forbes today? And it's really because of those early prayers that we kept praying over and over again, God, would you give us favor with editors and with uh, the readership? So that's, that's where all the credit goes. I, I don't even know how much of a role I had to play in it. I think it was just a bold prayer that led to that career. Very, very interesting. Fascinating. So do you have the book writing bug? Is there another book in your pipeline that you're excited about? There is. I don't have anything arranged, and I'm, I'm very curious to see where this all goes. The book just came out January 18th, so 
Uh, right now, I will say this, on Amazon, it's been a number one new release in time management, which is pretty pretty impressive to me that that, that, uh, that happened, because you don't know as a book author, you know, how a book is going to be received. So, And it has, uh, I think, 13 or 14 five-star reviews right now. I'm really happy with it. Uh, but there is a book that's ruminating in my uh, in my head right now, and it's really tackling this idea of misinformation and disinformation and social media and how uh, lies tend to spread on the internet and why do we even believe them in the first place? And that's some, that's a topic that I'm really really interested in, and I'd love to write about someday. John Brandon the book, The Seven-Minute Productivity Solution. Could you summarize, John, that book and our discussion for people uh, just to get their arms around this? How do you, how do you uh, uh, bring all that down into a concise little package for us? Yep. So the, the basic summary with the book is you can be intentional with your time. You can go through the, these routines that I'm suggesting. Uh, <coughs> nine different routines in the book. And the idea is to, to pay attention to what you're doing, when you're doing it. I have it down to every minute of the seven-minute routine. So, for example, with the morning routine, there's a schedule to go through every minute of that routine. And it's all the whole, the entire book is really just saying, can you work with purpose and think about your task a little bit deeper and not be so distracted and just doing all these different tasks, you know, all day long? And once you do that, once you find that purpose in your work, it leads to a better understanding of why you're even doing the work in the first place. And then it also leads to you becoming the type of person that has that intentionality in everything you do, even in things like your marriage or, you know, things outside of work, your leisure activities, being more intentional. Time is short, you know. We don't know how much time we have on it. Uh, by being more intentional and purposeful, we can become that type of person that really thinks about that all day long. John, there's so many people working from home now, and uh, we'll see if that continues. Uh, how does that relate to this book? Yeah, great question. You know, I mentioned earlier how distractions are, we, we are more distracted now than ever. Uh, I would say that if people are working at home, you've already realized this, but distractions come in even faster and more often. Uh, sometimes the distraction is a, is a little kid who knocks on your door and, you know, needs some attention for something. By the way, one thing I would say, someone who worked in a home office for about 15, 16 years, eventually I learned that when those distractions have a name and a face and they show up at your door, to see that as more of a holy interruption of your day and to actually say to yourself, you know what, um, I was working really hard, but this little person who's, you know, my own child or maybe it's my spouse uh, coming to bring me some lunch, whatever it is, to see that as an more of a blessing than anything. You know, don't see that as a distraction, but see it as a holy interruption. But at the same time, you know, there's a job to do. We have, we want to work hard. We want to finish our tasks. So we have. If you're a home worker and you're working remote, you have to be even more intentional with your time. You can't just take every task up that comes along. You have to learn how to say no. You have to learn how to 
prioritize your tasks. You might think you need to do 20 tasks in a day, but the reality is you maybe only really need to do four or five important tasks. So again, being more intentional, it's okay to fail, it's okay to accept the distractions that do come that have value, um, but then to just stay, stay on task and to think about what you're doing and if those are the right tasks you should be doing in the first place. My guest has been John Brandon, author of The 7-Minute Productivity Solution. Well, folks, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. Uh, you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just check in. Just leave a note. Uh, yes, I like the idea. I'd like to be part of this. I'm interested. Keep me posted. Um, we're working hard at it. Uh, Orlando's ready to become a Major League Baseball city. So uh, remember that website, orlandodreamers.com. Well, thanks for joining us here, folks. we got to wrap up on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando, we will return. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us here, folks. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, uh, J.D. Payne, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Apostolic Imagination. He was at uh, Samford University in Birmingham, wonderful Christian college there. And then John Brandon <clears throat> from Minneapolis, the seven-minute productivity solution, how to manage your schedule, overcome distraction, and achieve the results you want. A lot of value there. <laughs> and remember, folks, one other thing. Our, my, my latest book is out. Go get it. It's called Every Day is Game Day. Uh, go up to Amazon and uh, check out Every Day is Game Day, a 365-day sports devotional. I think you'll be pleased with it. And uh, you'll be pleased by staying tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. God bless, folks. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.